So in a way, and to put it in a simplistic way, the physical traders were playing on the financial oil market with inside information. It's almost like you know, betting on a particular number on the roulette, knowing that that's the number is going to come out. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we take a look at the world of commodity traders. My colleague Ben Cahill is joined by Javier Blas and Jack Farkey, two reporters covering energy and commodities with Bloomberg, and the authors of the new book, The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Bartered the Earth's Resources. The World for Sale is a business book that reads a bit like a thriller, thanks to the little understood workings of commodity traders. Ben's discussion with Javier and Jack focuses mostly on oil traders and their influence in the global oil markets, especially since the 1970s when several Middle Eastern countries needed to figure out how to move their oil to the markets, and then again in the 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. They also take a look at the possible future for commodity traders, whether it's how to trade different commodities like critical minerals, or how the business may have to adjust to new concerns about climate change, ESG, or the calls for greater transparency. I'll turn it over to Ben for this fascinating discussion. Well, Javier and Jack, uh, welcome to Energy 360. It's really great to have both of you here, and we're really excited to talk about your book, which is called The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. It's a great read. It's full of great stories, memorable characters, lots of fun anecdotes about some larger-than-life people. But I also think it's a really important book because it sheds a lot of light on the commodity trader sector, which is pretty opaque. It's not very well understood. And you really write in the book about how you know, this is an important industry. You know, it's shaped the, the way that the oil market has evolved over time, agricultural markets, and you know, it's a big part of geopolitical forces and tied in with some pretty significant events. So congrats on the book. I thought maybe I could just start with a broad question and maybe just ask you to, to walk us through the, the history of, of commodities trading, starting at the beginning. And Jack, maybe I can start with you. You guys start the book after World War II, and you write a lot about, you know, the very early days of, of commodity trading. And I thought some of the most interesting parts were about, you know, the early stages from that point through the oil nationalization. So can you kick us off by just talking about that period? Yeah, that's right. I mean, commodity trading uh, obviously is uh, pretty much as old as, as human activity and certainly as old as, as any business activity. So picking a start point for the book uh, was an interesting discussion. But we thought that in terms of looking at the kind of modern industry and particularly, you know, one of our, our big uh, theses and views in the book is that commodity traders play a very important economic and political role in our modern world. And we think that that, that kind of began uh, from the period after the Second World War. And it really began uh, with a few developments. But, but one of the key ones was the opening up of the oil market. So until the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, the oil market was very tightly controlled by uh, a few large American and European companies, the Seven Sisters, and they really controlled, you know, everything from production at the at the oil wells through to refining, through to retailing to ordinary people, uh, and there was very little oil market outside of those those few companies. Um, and you know, we start the history of the book at least in uh, in the early nineteen fifties with uh, what we believe is one of the first oil trades to be done by an independent oil trader is a guy called Theodore Weiser, the founder of a trading house called Mabernaft, who flies into the Soviet Union in 1954 and strikes a deal with the Russians to buy oil. 
But really until the late 1960s, early 1970s, there was very little market in oil outside of the Seven Sisters. And that began to change when countries in the Middle East and elsewhere started nationalising their oil industries, taking control back from the large American and European companies, the Seven Sisters, and suddenly they needed somebody to sell the oil. And who stepped into the breach? It was the commodity traders. So famously, Mark Rich, who was very active, first when he was working for Philip Brothers and then starting his own company, Mark Rich & Co., stepped in, struck deals with you know, countries like Iran, other OPEC countries, and, and, and started buying and selling oil uh, on what became the spot market. And that's how the business of commodity traders really took off, was in the oil market going from this very tightly controlled market that was you know, in the hands of a few large companies and there was no market, to suddenly there became a market and the people who made the market were the commodity traders. Yeah, I love that period of the book where you talk about you know, the impact of the, the oil nationalizations in the 70s and you know, the end of the Seven Sisters era and you know, vertically integrated companies that were kind of doing everything from the wellhead to, to the refinery and, and, and producing and, and transporting oil. I thought that period really showed the importance of this, you know, striking deals with the producing countries themselves. Um, and, you know, one of the enduring images of the book, I think, is this, you know, this image of the jet-setting commodities trader who goes around the world and has dinner, takes people out and, and strikes deals. Javier, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the early days of, of you know, this post-Seven Sisters period where some of these initial deals were made. How do the commodity traders do this? You know, what, what kind of skill set do they need? How was the blueprint for the industry kind of set in those early days? No, you're absolutely right. The, the early days is, is the kind of the, this Hollywood image of the um, oil trader traveling around the world in his private jet, beginnings of private aviation, and, and knowing everyone on a first-name basis. It was an industry that relied, and it still relies to a, to a certain point, on personal connections, so the trader will know the ministers of oil of OPEC countries, the, the new heads of these new national oil companies that emerged uh, from the nationalization wave of the 60s and 70s in the, in the Middle East and, and Africa. And it will be through those personal connections where they will, they will get their oil. And if possible, they will buy at what it was called at that point, the official price from OPEC, which usually was lower than the real price of oil on the spot market. So the trader could cast the difference between the official price and the spot price. And sometimes that could have been even five, six dollars or even more. And probably at, uh, on those early days, split some of the difference of that profit with someone of those government officials who were signing those those deals. Uh, so it was it was all about personal connections and it was all about knowing everyone. And Jack earlier mentioned Theodore Weiser, which was the one of the godfathers of the oil trading industry. And he famously will throw a party in a hotel on a corner of um, Central Park in New York. And it will be attended by the, the who is who of the of the oil industry. He knew very well. Uh, it was a personal friend of Sheikh Jamani, the Saudi oil minister who recently passed away. So it was an industry where the traders knew the ministers, the, the heads of the national oil companies, and they will they will cut deals with them personally. It was just a person to person relationship. So, Jack, the book is full of stories of, of lots of deals cut with governments of all stripes, from you know communist governments to um, kleptocrats around the world. And you have a number of traders in the, in the book who very clearly decided that they were going to do business with all types of people. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, the role of, of traders in, in politics in these different countries? Did they make specific decisions in, in some cases that they were going to be apolitical? 
uh, even when the industry itself was, was, was shaping politics in a lot of these countries? Yeah, I mean, when you talk to the traders themselves, they would say, we don't play politics, we're not interested in politics, we're simply interested in making money. And, you know, if we see a deal that's legal and profitable, we'll do it, and we don't really think about the political impact. And I think there's probably quite a lot of truth to that in terms of the way that they see what they're doing, but that doesn't change the fact that they absolutely do have a political impact. Uh, and probably the, the most striking example of that in recent history is the Libyan civil war in 2011, when rebels were rising up against Colonel Gaddafi, but they didn't have enough fuel and they certainly didn't have any money. Uh, you know, this was a, a rebel grouping uh, based in Benghazi without a government, without a central bank. And then in flew Ian Taylor, the chief executive of VTOL, the world's largest oil trader, and struck a deal to supply them with gasoline and diesel. Uh, and to be paid back only when they'd won the war. So in the end, VTOL ended up lending them $1 billion worth of fuel over the next few months. I think, you know, it's without a shadow of doubt, thanks to having that fuel, uh, the, the rebels won the war, uh, paid VTOL back. But without that deal, um, they almost certainly wouldn't have won the war. You use a couple of major pivot points in the book and kind of organize the book around a couple big, you know, important points of, of evolution. And one of them was the breakup of the Soviet Union. So Jack, I wonder if you could just talk about how that fueled the, the traders' growth. We had this kind of chaotic period in the 90s in, in Russia where all of a sudden the command economy collapsed and all these industries, whether it was oil or, or agriculture or metals, suddenly needed to find buyers and had no idea how to export goods, right? Because this was, a, again, a command economy where the state did everything and there was a single buyer. So there, there's some great anecdotes in the book about how this worked, but can you just talk about how this kind of fueled growth for the commodity houses and how they took advantage of the situation in Russia in the 90s? We think and uh, we argue in the book that this was one of the ma one of the big developments that really fueled the growth of the commodity trading industry and also, you know, demonstrates their both economic and political uh, significance in the modern history of the world. As you say, uh, you know, until the late 1980s, early 1990s, the resources industry of the Soviet Union, which was this huge, uh, huge producer of natural resources and consumer, was completely controlled by the central authorities in Moscow, and not just the exports, which were fed through a very small number of state trading agencies, but also actually the whole um, supply chain internally of natural resources. So, you know, take a commodity like aluminium, of which the Soviet Union was the biggest producer alongside the United States at that point, the, the supply of, from bauxite to alumina to aluminium to processed aluminium products was all controlled from Moscow. And there were factories around the Soviet Union uh, that, would, that were involved in different points of that supply chain, but none of them had any idea how to interact with one another and to transport their goods from one place to another. That was all controlled by Moscow. Then suddenly the system completely collapses and nobody knows how to do any of that and who steps in the commodity traders. For them, of course, that's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, the ruble was collapsing. The price of commodities in, in the now former Soviet Union was a, a really a fraction. You know, I think we, we talked to some traders who were talking about buying things for less than a quarter of their international price. So uh, it was practically a closing down sale for commodities. But they also played a really important role in both connecting the plants uh, within the Soviet, within the former Soviet Union that needed to be connected and had previously been connected by 
central planners in Moscow and also in organising their exports and crucially uh, delivering hard currency that they needed to do things like buy food or pay wages. And in the process, of course, that meant that they provided the seed funds for a number of the people who went on to become oligarchs and some of whom are still oligarchs today. And, you know, we spoke to a number of the commodity traders who were active in that time. And, uh, and you know, one of them said, yes, we sponsored a number of the oligarchs. Yeah, it was definitely a period of big risk taking and massive rewards for a lot of those people from the commodity trading houses who went in early. Another period of growth that you talk about a lot in the book is, if we fast forward in time a little bit, is this period of, of hyper growth in, in China, especially in the 2000s. And the commodities super cycle that that kicked off for everything from you know agricultural commodities to, to tin to rubber to, to oil. So Javier, I wonder if you can talk about how this fueled growth among the traders. And was this the golden era for commodity houses? Ben, you are absolutely right. It was the golden era for the commodity traders because what China does is completely change the profit of the industry. I, I give you an example that we, we quote on the book. Before the commodity super cycle started, uh, if you take 1998, the low point, uh, a, a trader like Beetle, which is the world's largest independent oil trader, was making just $24 million in net profit. You fast forward a decade later, it is making $2.2 billion in 2006. So that is the transformation that China brings along. China goes from being an afterthought for the commodity trading industry. Remember that many commodity traders in the 60s and 70s are not based, their Asian headquarter is not based in China, it's actually based in Tokyo because Japan is the economy in the 80s that is booming and, and people is, is trying to cultivate. And then China emerges as the buyer of everything, becomes the... Uh, over time, the world's largest importer of oil, the world's largest importer of copper, the world's largest importer of soybean. In the case of soybean, China was importing about 50 to 60% of all the soybean that they were traded around the world. So it became this massive force. And there, the commodity traders were the middleman who connected the Chinese factories and the Chinese population to the production centers of raw materials. And the commodity traders supply those, those raw materials from traditional areas like the United States, Canada, Latin America, the former Soviet Union. But also when those were not nearly enough, they went into Africa and financed a big increase in commodity exports from Africa and probably were the link of one of the big geopolitical movements of the last few years that has been the China connection into Africa and how uh, China has played a big role in the economic development, but also in the local politics of African countries. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point. That is an interesting pivot point. And I think it also highlights something else that the trading houses have done over time, which is to start investing directly in assets. So things like mines, um, oil and gas fields, including some pretty difficult environments um, in Central Africa and West Africa. So either Jack or Javier, I wonder if you could just walk us through this decision that the trading houses made. Why did they decide to invest directly in assets instead of just in transporting them and, and finding a market for them? And what were the challenges that they encountered as they started to get into this different type of business? I think there's a combination of reasons why they decided to invest into assets. I mean, one part is, uh, as Javier was just saying, commodity de demand was going through the roof. Prices were rising very rapidly. And so having an investment in assets was probably the best 
way to deploy your capital and to make a lot of money in a rising uh, in a rising commodity price environment. You know, you look at Glencore, for example, which through the 1990s bought a lot of coal mines. Uh, the main reason for that was Ivan Glassenberg, then the head of coal, now the CEO, believed that the coal price could only go up. Um, you know, he saw that the price uh, was too low for many miners to make a profit, thought that demand would be good and, and, and wanted to, to place a bet that prices would go up. There was no futures market for coal, no real way to place such a bet other than to buy up mines. And so that's what he did. I think another element of the story and the reason why they were they were buying assets was they saw that the business of trading, that at least the traditional business of trading that, for example, you know, a Mark Rich or a Theodore Weiser was doing in the 60s or 70s or 80s, you go to somewhere, buy some packet of a commodity from one person, transport it some halfway across the world and sell it uh, for a price that is higher than what you bought it for plus your costs, was simply becoming impossible. Um, you know, information was suddenly much more available. There was more competition, more finance available. And, and, and suddenly those the, the easy profit, let's say, of uh, the commodity trader who was faster and had better information than everyone else in the market was was smaller and less easily available. And, and so how do you supercharge your business? You invest in assets. And so that's all the commodity traders going out to invest in ports, in processing facilities, in refineries, and eventually upstream, you know, investing in mines, and in some cases, uh, even oil fields. Yeah, I think that highlights one, one question I had for you, which is, we saw this incredible growth among all the traders in the 2000s. As you said, Javier, this is kind of the, the golden age for them. You know, the flip side of that is that these, these traders are making an incredible amount of money trading other people's natural resources. I mean, at the end of the day, these are resources that belong to countries and, and their citizens. And the profits that the commodity trading houses were making, in some cases, were just enormous. So clearly, the citizens are losing out. And there's a certain amount of um, unfairness and definitely corruption that was involved in these deals. So maybe a basic question for you to tackle, Javier. Do we really need commodity traders? And should they be making so much money? Is there any justification for the kind of huge profit margins that we saw in past cycles of, of of this industry? So do we need the commodity traders? i give you a, a personal experience of my morning. Uh, yes, we need them because I have a coffee this morning and I'm not going to be the person who is going to have to go all the way to Costa Rica to secure the coffee beans so I can enjoy my coffee in the morning. So you are going to need an intermediary who is going to put his own capital at risk, who is going to invest on the supply chain to make sure that the coffee beans of my coffee this morning were picked up somewhere up country in Costa Rica, transported to a port, from them probably shipped into a, a northwestern European port, their process, and then all of a sudden, you know, through my retailer, made their way into my Nespresso coffee this morning. But then the question is, should be so well regarded, so well rewarded? Should the traders make so much money for the service that they are providing to the global economy? Well, it very much depends. There are times where the traders are not making money, and, and let's not forget, at times they also lose money. It's not, it's not like they every day make money. But you are absolutely right that in some occasions the traders, and that has happened even recently, employ dark tactics or outright illegal methods to secure the deals. We have seen 
the Department of Justice investigating a number of commodity trading houses over the last uh, few years. Some of those investigations are ongoing and they relate to uh, corruption and money laundering. And we have seen big commodity trading houses uh, settling cases with the U.S. Department of Justice on corruption and bribery as recently as three months ago for bribery that was happening last year. So certainly there is an element still that has plagued the industry uh, about corruption and, and around bribery. But I don't think that that's what the industry does as a, as a whole. The industry does provide a good service to, to, to the global economy. They connect producers and suppliers. And uh, I like how an academic and a scholar just defines what the traders do. He says that they are the visible manifestation of the invisible hand of Adam Smith. So that's what the traders are about. But yes, when everyone sees how much money they make, uh, you wonder, should we ourselves do some of that? And we have seen more producers and more consumers, big companies, going into trading, trying to uh, take some of the money that is on the table for themselves, rather than leaving it to the independent traders to take it home. Let me ask about the evolution of futures markets. Um, again, in, in the book, you write about some important pivot points. And one of them, I think, is the, the creation of futures markets and derivative markets and how that created the ability to hedge risk. Can you just talk about how this affected the, the traders' business, how it affected their, uh, their risk tolerance um, and the volumes that they're able to trade at? Well, until the early uh, 1980s, uh, oil traders were unable to hedge their exposure to price. So every night the traders were going to home, uh, effectively betting the house on what was going to happen overnight with uh, their cargos that they have bought. If the price was going up and they were long, they would be making money. If the price was going down, they would lose money. If the price really dropped a lot overnight, they may lose the company. And it was a huge risk for them. Alone later in the 80s, uh, early 80s in the United States and a bit later in Europe come the development of oil futures and oil options that for the first time allows the traders to hedge their price exposure. So not, uh, they're not longer betting the house every night. And that allows the traders to trade bigger volumes because they can hedge their price exposure. So all of a sudden, we see an increase in volumes among the leading traders. But oil futures also make speculation a lot easier. Previously, the only way to bet on the price of oil was to own uh, actual oil. You needed to own a cargo of oil. Uh, the financialization of the oil market makes possible for the first time that anyone who just goes loan oil futures, buys paper oil effectively, can bet on the price of oil. So that also allows the traders to start taking biggest risks through the financial market and making directional bets on what is gonna happen with the price of oil with a lot of ease. So yes, in a way, it helps the industry to reduce risk, but at the same time, it became very soon almost like a casino on the oil market. Yeah, and at that point in, in the market, I suppose it was in the 1980s that that started you know, with the financialization. Um, you had a lot of new players enter into the trading world, as you said. So the investment banks and the creation of commodities desks. So w w what are the real advantages for the, the traders in being able to trade both physical and, and paper barrels? How are they able to deal with kind of volatility and and take risks and make money where some of the others who are trading in the space weren't trading in the paper market, that is? 
Well, in the very early days of the of the uh, paper market for oil, the the physical traders still have a huge advantage above everything everyone else is that they have better information of the market than everyone else that was playing on that market. The traders knew what uh, supply was doing if if OPEC was uh, increasing production without telling any anyone. The traders will see it earlier than most because they were the ones who were sending tankers to the oil ports of the Middle East to pick up the oil. So they see before anyone else when production is increasing or production is decreasing. They also have a better view about where oil demand is because they are supplying dozens of refineries around the world. So they get almost a, a real-time view of where the demand of oil was at any given time. And that information that they are gathering on the physical market then can be used on the financial market to make a bet on the direction of the, the price of oil. So in a way, and to put it in a simplistic way, the physical traders were playing on the financial oil market with inside information. It's almost like you know betting on a particular number on the roulette, knowing that that's the number is going to come out. Yeah, the book has a great history of, of commodity trading. And I wanted to bring things up to the present a little bit and start to talk about some of the, the challenges for the industry today. You mentioned that there is more competition for the traders um, from uh, Chinese companies, both private and, and state-run companies, and also from national oil companies who are starting to open up trading divisions. Their trading divisions are growing. They're striking joint ventures. So Jack, can you just talk a little bit about how um, competition for the traders has evolved over time? And how they're responding? Yes, I mean, I think we see um, there's a couple of turning points, really. One is the 1990s, when commodity prices were low, and across the natural resources industry, and including the commodity trading industry, there was a real consolidation and a washing out of competition, and a lot of companies left the sector. I mean, you know, probably in commodity trading, the most prominent example being Enron, when it went bust, was, you know, removed a lot of competition. So you had, at the beginning of the 2000s, this, this, this magnificently profitable period, a relatively few companies that were in a position to benefit. And then the other turning point uh, is the IPO of Glencore in 2011, which is probably about the peak of the, of the China-driven commodity cycle. And that really had the effect of bringing to light and putting out in the public eye quite how profitable these companies were. It, you know, got people like us, journalists, writing about commodity traders, and I think made uh, clear to the world, including to a lot of the commodity traders' customers, quite how much money they were making. And so suddenly, you know, in the years after that, you've seen more competition coming in the form of producers of commodities. So we have companies like Saudi Aramco, Adnoc, big oil producers, ExxonMobil, which traditionally was not a trader, has started hiring traders. Um, they're not going to become Glencore anytime soon, but there's been a shift in emphasis there. And also consumers, and most uh, notably and most uh, significantly, China, which has been investing very heavily to build commodity trading capability, you know, most pertinently in agriculture, where Kofco, the state agriculture company, has made a couple of very big acquisitions and built an international trading house, not without pitfalls, but the, the trend is clear that they're taking on the, the commodity traders that we're writing about in the book as, as, as competitors. And can you explain some of the differences between commodity traders in the oil and gas sector versus agriculture? How much consolidation is there in the ag sector? I know that Cargill is kind of the 
800 pound gorilla, but um, do you have more diversification in a bigger set of, of ag traders or is it a different set of actors? Well, I think that both are, are quite consolidated. Um, in, in agriculture is effectively four to six companies that really dominate the market and, and, and set the trends. Uh, so you have what we call the ABCD for the initials of those companies, ADM, Bungi, Cargill and, and Dreyfus. And probably you could add there uh, the agricultural division of, of Glencore and now Kofco. So those six companies really dominate the market. In oil trading, we have more actors because you have the, the, the big five independent oil trading houses, but you have a number of big oil companies that have developed very strong uh, trading capabilities like Royal Dutch Shell, BP and Total of France. The Chinese have built four big, large oil trading organizations, all state owned, each focusing on a, on a particular sector of the market, but the, the four of them being very strong. And you have also some of the Japanese uh, traditional trading houses, the Shogososha, which are also big players in the oil trading market. So you, you have a bit more of, of competition in oil, but generally what really surprises us as research in the book is how concentrated the trade of commodities is in a handful of companies, particularly because that handful of companies is owned by a very small number of individuals, as most of these companies are privately owned. Uh, so it's not just that there are few companies, it's that they are owned by, by a very small number of people. This is not like uh, the oil sector, when you have relatively a small number of oil companies, but then they are owned by thousands, if not millions of people through their pension funds, because most of them are publicly listed. Javier, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about price cycles affect profitability for the for the trading houses. I think the perception is probably that the high oil prices or, or high commodity prices are the boom period for these trading houses, but is it that simple? When do they have their best periods? Is it during high prices or during periods of volatility? And how do they strategize around that? Usually the best period for a trading house is at the stream, either very low prices, depressed demand, or at the very end of the situation, very strong demand and very high prices. They don't usually make a lot of money when the market is not really moving a lot and, and there, is, there is not a particular trend. But surprisingly, the commodity traders can make a lot of money when prices are very low. And 2020 was an example, prices of oil collapsed at one point, uh, going even negative in Texas. We saw demand wiping out because of the impact of COVID. At one point, probably about a quarter of global oil demand has disappeared. And however, the traders could make a lot of money on that situation using very simple techniques which deliver strong profits and don't require a lot of risk. Simply buying and storing all those barrels of oil that no one else is interested in, in buying or consuming and waiting for better prices to, to come. At the same time, they hedge the price into the financial market, uh, immediately locking in a, a profit. And that's where we saw very strong profits in, in 2020 that in a way they are counterintuitive because you, you will expect that because low prices, no one is really making money. But it's the streams. It's either very low prices or very high prices when the traders really thrive. I want to talk a little bit about regulation of the trading houses and also uh, access to, to finance and how that's changing for them. But maybe we can start with a, a question on regulations. So a lot of these big trading houses are 
headquartered in Switzerland, which is notoriously non-transparent, has banks that, you know, channel a lot of money. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the corruption uh, has been enabled by this very light touch regulation. Are things changing? Is there a sense that these commodity trading houses have to change with the times? Are regulations of the industry increasing, uh, both in Switzerland and other provinces? How are they responding to this? Uh, regulation is increasing, particularly in, in Switzerland, and the Swiss government has started to take action. We have seen more prosecutions happening in the natural resources scene, but it's still a, a low, low touch environment for the traders uh, in Switzerland and in other places, similar to the case in Dubai and, and Singapore. Perhaps the biggest uh, attempt for oversight and regulation is actually coming from the United States and the international reach that the U.S. Treasury Department and Department of Justice could have through the dollar. Commodity trading mostly happens in, in U.S. dollars, and therefore all those transactions at some point have to be routed through a bank that is in the United States. And therefore, the U.S. government has some jurisdiction to that, and that's where we have seen the big investigations and the big enforcement cases. But it's still generally an industry that is very lightly regulated, in part because uh, putting aside the US dollar, everything happens on the high seas, uh, beyond the regulation of a single government or a single country. It's physical movement of commodities, so this is different to the regulation of the futures market, for example, where um, financial regulators play uh, a, a much bigger role. Uh, and because it's physical commodities, and because it happens on the high seas, uh, so it's not the responsibility of a single country. Very often, no one is really uh, regulating what is happening. And one of the traditional surprises for Jack and I was when uh, a government here or there will contact us for information about what we thought that was happening on the market or with this particular company. And we were realizing that that government have almost as little or if not less information that we had about what was happening. That's always very concerning when the government is phoning the journalists to try to find out what is happening. Well, that's a sign that you guys have become experts on the, these companies too. So uh, <laughs> that's valued. I wonder how the world of finance and their their attitude to the traders is, is, is changing. So with the ESG movement uh, and more push for transparency, how is this affecting the bank's willingness to lend to the trading houses and their access to capital? Um, Jack, maybe you can take this one. I think the, the most important thing that's happened is the point that Javier touched on earlier is the, uh, the importance of the dollar and particularly following the, the fine on BNP Paribas in 2014, all banks, European banks, are terrified of a repeat of that. And it is the case that European banks have historically been the core financiers of the commodity industry, the commodity trading industry. And so they've become important enforcers of good corporate behavior, uh, anti-corruption, know your customer, all of that kind of thing is being, is being pushed now by the European banks that are the key financiers of the commodity trading industry. When you look at things like ESG, I think it's still a bit slow. Um, we've seen banks pushing, uh, banks, both banks and you know, equity investors, pushing natural resource producers to put in place plans for net zero or to, to reduce coal production, not to invest in, 
in new coal mines, for example, a lot of banks have now pledged not to invest in financing new coal mines. Um, we're not really seeing that yet with the trading of commodities. So we're not say, seeing banks yet saying, oh, we're not going to finance coal trading. We're not going to finance uh, Glencore, for example, because it's the world's biggest coal trader, or we're not going to finance oil trading. I do wonder if it's a question of time before we do start to see that, because clearly this is, a, is an area where both popular opinion and the perception of what the financial industry ought to be doing is moving very, very rapidly. And I suspect it's only a matter of time before we start to see banks saying, hold on a second, if we're not going to finance coal production, does it make sense for us to finance coal trading? Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think there are some signs that some of these traders are starting to look at their coal portfolio and their footprint in that sector and think about uh, changing out their portfolio a bit. There is a big energy transition underway. Fossil fuels are going to be with us for a very long time, and I'm sure they'll be a big part of the business for, for the commodity traders. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the energy transition is, is, is reshaping their thinking about what are the big growth areas in the future. Javier, maybe you could talk about whether or not you see some strategies developing among the, the various traders, Trafficker, Vital, Guncor, Gunvor. Which ones are looking to get bigger in metals, raw materials are going to be important to, to renewable energy? Do you see a kind of divergence shaping up among the traders in terms of how they're responding to this? I think that you're right. The traders see that the fight against climate change is going to be uh, shaping the, their business. At the same time, they are quite short term on their corporate thinking. So they, they let the market evolve and then they, they say, we'll trade whatever the market needs in, in any particular time. But we see uh, some trends that you mentioned. Uh, I think that one is that every trading house is investing on more trade of natural gas, particularly LNG. Uh, Gumbor, Trafigura and Beetle in particular have been building their capabilities in LNG trading, where some of the companies have, have got very large very quickly. Still as a bit of an experiment, but uh, an interest of trading uh, electricity or power because of the electrification of, of, of society, uh, particularly if we get more into electric vehicles and also a bit of experiment, experimentation with emissions, carbon credits and similar, where they, they think that they may be able to play a role. But one big surprise to us talking to all the trading houses was how generally, particularly the ones who have a big business in oil, unconcerned they were about the impact of climate change and about what uh, the trade that they were uh, supporting was doing to uh, our planet. Uh, it was really a bit of troublesome to listen to them as simply saying, well, we, we trade what society demands and that's it. As long as society demands coal or oil, we're we just going to be trading those products and they were rather unconcerned. And then there will be some opportunities with the green economy. We are going to have more demand for certain metals, like cobalt, for example, and they probably are going to open opportunities for the traders. But I don't know if those opportunities are going to be large enough to compensate for whatever they lose if we start to see less uh, of coal trading and, and, and a drop in, in oil volumes that they are traded. I wanted to ask a question about the management of some of the trading houses and you know, how this is shaping up for their strategy in the future. I mean, you write a lot in the book about the impact of some pretty big personalities like Ivan Glassenberg and Ian Taylor at Vital. And there is a bit of a passing of the torch going on at some of these companies. Um, can you talk about how the, you know, the change in leadership and maybe the change in corporate structure is, is affecting the outlook? And what do you see as kind of the next step in the evolution of 
of these trading houses. Yeah, I think it's right that there is uh, a bit of a generational shift going on at the moment, and probably not only a generational shift, also a bit of a a lot of the conversation that we've been having uh, the last few questions you've asked has been touching on some of these points. ESG, uh, corruption. Another one that I would raise uh, is diversity. You know, the commodity trading houses are still, for the most part, extremely undiverse, both in terms of gender diversity, also in terms of racial diversity. This is an industry that still looks pretty backwards. And I think that does probably have to change. I mean, an interesting conversation we had uh, was with uh, Gunvor, with the CFO of Gunvor, who said, look, you know, if you want to hire young talent today, they don't want to work for a company that trades dirty commodities, that does dirty things in dirty countries. They don't want to work for a, for a company that, that is full of old white men, you know, and doesn't have the diversity. Uh, so I think that there, there is a bit of a turning point here. And like many industries of the world, the commodity trading industry does have to evolve. And probably it does take a new generation to, to do that. Well, I think we are out of time for today's conversation. The book by Javier Blas and Jack Farchi is The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. It's a terrific read. It's a great resource for those of us who've been following the oil and gas industry and commodities trades for a long time. Um, and you've done such good work doing the investigative work, convincing people to talk in a very opaque industry. So I encourage everyone to read the book. And thanks so much for your time today. It was great to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Javier, Jack, and Ben for that discussion. If you want to know more, pick up a copy of The World for Sale. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.